Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 22. Last week, I walked through much of the second dynasty of ancient Egypt, ending with Pharaoh Senej. I also gave a peek behind the curtain of the podcast. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with Senej's probable successor, Seth Peribson, wrapping up the second, going all the way through the third, and getting through a bit of the fourth dynasty. So let's get started. Seth Peribson ruled during the 28th century BC for an indeterminate period. His name is unusual for the period as it does not reference Horus, but instead Set, their god of chaos. So, no falcon for him, as the Horus kings would typically get. Instead, he gets an animal that is really hard to describe. But this hasn't stopped some from trying, at least not yet. They usually describe Set's animal as an amalgamation of an aardvark, a donkey, a jackal, or a fox. The animal has a curved snout, long rectangular ears, a thin forked tail, and the body of a dog. On the top of its head are fur tufts in an inverted arrow shape. During the late period, Set was depicted as a donkey, or as having a donkey's head. But the depiction of this era reminds me of chaos. So, well done, ancient Egyptians. Peribson is the only known pharaoh to have been associated with the set animal. But others did reference the god himself. Just no animal. Like most pharaohs where archaeological evidence has been found, at least from his era, there are jar seals and various pieces of pottery inscribed with his name. But there were also stone pots with copper-coated rims, the oldest such items found in Egyptian tombs. And there's something else, a seal impression with the first known complete sentence in Egyptian history. It reads, The Golden One, he of Ambos hath unified, handed over the two realms to his son, the king of Lower and Upper Egypt, Peribson. And that's a language milestone. Most of these artifacts were found in his tomb at Abydaios. This tomb was rediscovered in 1898. When found, it had indications of a previous restoration, probably during a later dynastic period. It was originally uncovered by a French archaeologist, Emile Amelieu. And in 1901, Flinders Petrie continued the dig. That's four consecutive episodes for Sir Petrie. But who's counting? Apparently, I am. It appears the tomb was hastily constructed, and two large granite tomb stele were found outside the tomb. They appeared unfinished and rough, so he may have died suddenly, and may also have ruled for a short time. But that's only speculation. And, unlike his predecessors, he was buried alone, meaning not accompanied by members of his royal court. Apparently, that practice ended with Kua'a. Now, Peribson is not found in the Abadaios Turin or Sakura king list, but he is attested to on other tombs. The general feeling is that he may have been forgotten in history, or that his name may have been altered. Peribson's choice of patron god, the Chaotic One, and his rule during the obscure period of the Second Dynasty, has led Egyptologists and historians to search for possible explanations 
for both his name and the troubled times he lived in. There are discarded theories that he may have tried to introduce monotheism, leading to turmoil, or that the kingdom had once again split between upper and lower, having suffered through the turmoil that may have included civil wars, or maybe economic troubles, or maybe even that the theorized split kingdom from his predecessors continued through his reign. But overall, there's not enough evidence to really hang your hat on any one of the theories. But the evidence does support that the kingdom was probably divided, for largely unknown reasons. Most of his artifacts were found in Upper Egypt. Well, really all of his artifacts, except for a single clay seal found in the Lower Territory. So if true, there would have been a separate ruler for Lower Egypt. Who? Who knows? There is the thought that Peribzin was one and the same as his successor, Sekomib Perimat. I'll get to him in a few minutes. Clay seals of Sekomib were found at the entrance of Peribzin's tomb and are the reason for this theory. Well, also that Sekomib's tomb has not yet been found. But keep in mind, it's completely normal for artifacts from one pharaoh to be found at the tomb of another. There are researchers who interpret the Palermo stone that suggests that the kingdom was not divided. Instead, it's thought that the split was merely a split of either the administration of the kingdom or of the priesthood sex. We don't really know. Supporting the split of the administration was a title change of many government officials. The titles of scribes, seal bearers, and overseers were adjusted to correspond to the divided bureaucratic state government. Titles like Sealer of the King were changed into Sealer of the King of Upper Egypt. This change may show an attempt by Peribzin to limit the power of these officials. Further evidence for a bloated and unwieldy state administration under Nunetja. But then again, it may show that the pharaoh only controlled Upper Egypt. There is an inscription on a stone pot that mentions a tribute of the people of Sethro potentially suggesting that Peribson established a temple for the deity Seth in the Nile Delta. This would imply that Peribson ruled over both Upper and Lower Egypt. But the primary sources of who ruled when, namely the rulers of Lower and Upper Egypt, differ in this time period. The Royal Table of Saqqara and the Turin List reflect Memphite traditions, which only allowed Memphite rulers to be mentioned, the Abidios king list instead reflects the Thinite traditions, and therefore only Thinite rulers appear on that list. Until the pharaoh Senejid, these lists were all in agreement. But after Senejid, the lists diverge. The Saqqara and Turin list named three kings as successors, Neferkara I, Neferkara Sokar, and Hujefa I. The Abadaios list jumps forward to the JJ. The discrepancies are considered by researchers to be the result of the division of Egypt during the Second Dynasty. I'll get to the Saqqara and Abadaios list in the future. For now, it's time to move from Peribson and to his successor, Sekhilmib. And it's believed that he was the successor, but he also could have been the co-ruler, or maybe the same person. The length of his reign and the whereabouts of his tomb are unknown. But we do know his name via seal impressions and from inscriptions on alabaster jars. 
These were found at the entrance to Peribson's tomb at Abadios, and also in the underground galleries beneath the steppe pyramid of the third dynasty pharaoh Djoser at Saqqara. A few were also at Elephantine, and that's pretty much all that is known of him. After either Perimet or Peribson was Kazi Kemwai, who ruled for about 18 years around the turn of the 27th century, probably between 2690 and 2672 BC. These dates are about as close to being confirmed by the Palmyra stone as any others from the same era. The stone is actually very specific, showing 18 years, 2 months, and 23 days. The same stone shows several separate cattle censuses. He was the last pharaoh of the second dynasty. About all that is known concerning his 18 years is that he led several significant military campaigns and built the mud-brick fortification known as Shunet el Zebib. It's thought that he did reunite Upper and Lower Egypt after a civil war between the followers of the rival gods Horus and Set, but there's also the theory that he defeated the reigning king Seth Peribson after returning to Egypt following his excursion into Nubia. He apparently quelled a revolt in the southern territory, that territory being Nubia. Whichever one it was, he ended the infighting of the second dynasty and reunited Egypt. His name can be interpreted as the two powerful ones appear, or the two powers appear in that the ancestors rest within him, which has led some researchers to propose he reunited Egypt. But an alternate translation is Horus, he whose power appears. Kazi Kemwai's wife was known, Queen Nimatop. They were the parents of Dozier's, and Dozier's wife, Hetafrenedi. It's also possible that Kazi Kemwai's son was Shankut. Djoser was his probable successor. Curiously, he was the earliest Egyptian king known to have built statues of himself. But that's not all he did. He also started large building projects upon the reunification of Egypt. Most of these were in El Cobb, Hierakonopolis, and Abadios. He also had his rather large tomb built at Abadios. It had 58 rooms. It is apparently the final royal tomb built there. It is one of the oldest masonry structures in the world and is built from quarried limestone the only older such structures on the entirety of the blue marble we call Earth are a few smaller ones from the First Dynasty. Flinders Petrie detailed many of the items uncovered in his tomb, including the king's scepter of gold and carnelian, small stone pots with gold leaf lid coverings, flint and copper tools, and of course, the requisite pottery, in this case filled with grain and fruit. Pharaoh Kazi Kemwai, the last ruler of the Second Dynasty, was able to reunify the state administration of Egypt and therefore unite the whole of ancient Egypt. He brought the two treasury houses of Egypt under the control of the House of the King, bringing them into a new single administrative center. And that's it for the Second Dynasty. But before moving on, the Saqqara Tablet and the Abadios List, really quickly. The Saqqara Tablet is an ancient stone engraving which features a list of Egyptian pharaohs surviving from the Ramsesside period. 
It was found during 1861 in Egypt in Saqqara, in the tomb of Jainer, an official of Ramses II. Jainer was either the chief lector priest, or the overseer of works of all royal monuments, or maybe both. The tablet is currently located in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. On it, the inscriptions list 58 kings from Anjib to Kua'a, both of the First Dynasty, to Ramses II of the 19th Dynasty. But it leaves out rulers from the Second Intermediate Period, the Hyksos, and those rulers who had been close to the heretic Akhenaten. You might remember Akhenaten as Amenhotep IV, who abandoned polytheism for monotheism. Of the 58 names on the list, only 47 survived the trials of history enough to be legible. The list also has many known inaccuracies, like listing only four kings from the Third Dynasty. In fact, the list is only exactly correct for the kings of the Twelfth Dynasty, as far as we know. The Abadayos King List, sometimes called the Abadayos Table, is a list of 76 kings of ancient Egypt. It was inscribed on a wall of the Temple of Seti I at Abadayos, Egypt. Seti was a pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, the son of Ramses I and the father of Ramses II. He ruled in the 13th century BC, just over 100 years after Moses died. In addition to providing the order of the Old Kingdom's kings, it is the sole source to the date of the names of many of the kings of the 7th and 8th dynasties. But like the Saqqara tablet, the Abadayas list omits the names of many early rulers who were considered illegitimate. Leaders who were Hyksos, along with Hatshepsut, Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, and I. That's right, some in ancient Egypt considered King Tut to be an illegitimate ruler. And that's it for these tablets. Which brings me to the Third Dynasty, and a good place to press the accelerator a bit. I'm beginning to feel like I'm getting bogged down in the nuances of ancient Egyptian history, and this isn't a podcast about ancient Egyptian history. So I'm going to speed up, and this acceleration will last until we get to about the time of Abraham, sometime around 2200 BC. Having said that, I will pause around important events, like well-known pharaohs and the building of the pyramids. And with that, let's start the Third Dynasty. The Third Dynasty marks the beginning of a period known as the Old Kingdom. This period ran through the Sixth Dynasty. At this time, well, throughout the Old Kingdom, the country placed its capital at Memphis. Both the Turin King List and the Abadios King List record five kings during the dynasty, while the Saqqara tablet only records four. But, each of the three is slightly different from the others, and this could be due to the same rulers having different names. I'm not going to bore you with all the complexities. After the turbulent last years of the Second Dynasty, which might have included a civil war, and certainly some form of upset, along with little archaeological evidence firmly attesting to a definite order of leaders. Anyway, Egypt came under the rule of Dozier, and this marks the beginning of the Third Dynasty. The actual time period of the dynasty is a bit uncertain, but it began around 2686 BC and ran to 2613, so for about 73 years. 
but the actual beginning and ending dates vary by researcher, and some have the era ending as late as 2520 BC, so almost nearly a century later. The first ruler was Dozier, and is best known for the creation of the first pyramid, in this case a step pyramid that served as his tomb. As for the rest of the leaders during the period, they too would be buried in pyramids. But most of these structures would only be partially finished before the death of the leader. And the construction of the pyramids does tend to indicate that it was a period of relative political stability and economic prosperity. The fourth dynasty of ancient Egypt is thought of as the Golden Age of the Old Kingdom. This dynasty was between about 2613 and 2494 BC, so still well before Abraham. It's considered a golden age due to the relative peace and prosperity. It's also a time when trade between it and its neighbors is well documented. The fourth dynasty was the peak of pyramid building, and building wasn't limited to these massive structures. There were also huge temples and administrative buildings constructed during the period. More on these in a minute. The prosperity allowed the rulers to focus on developing the culture that would stick around for close to 2,000 years. The first king of the fourth dynasty was Snifuru. During his reign, the first true pyramid, known as the Red Pyramid, was completed. Prior to that, he completed, then abandoned, the multi-angular so-called Bent Pyramid. He also built a structure known as the Medium Pyramid. All of these remain today though the medium pyramid has partially collapsed. He also constructed a number of smaller step pyramids. In fact, it's generally a consensus that Snifuru was the most prolific pyramid builder of the era. To emphasize the point, it's generally also mentioned that Snifuru had more stone moved and brick made than any other pharaoh. Snifuru was married to his half-sister, Queen Heteferes I, who was the mother to his son and successor, Khufu. More on him in a minute. He maintained tight control over the land of the empire, ensuring his power and increasing the wealth of the regime. He directed military expeditions into Sinai, Nubia, Libya, and began trade arrangements with Lebanon. This was specifically to bring cedar back for his construction projects. The details of this are recorded on the Palermo Stone, while some portions of the stone are lost, one remaining section contains notations about the arrival of 40 ships filled with timber from an unnamed foreign land and purchased during the reign of Snefuru, the closest port with wood, Byblos, Lebanon. And that's it for Snefuru. Khufu would come next, and he is probably the most well-known pharaoh from the Old Kingdom, due mostly to his breathtaking pyramids. I'll get to those in a bit. He's sometimes referred to by his Greek name, Cheops. All that we know of him is from inscriptions in his necropolis at Giza and later documents, which may not seem like much, but it's much better than most, if not all, of his predecessors. And what it really amounts to is the description of his tomb, the Great Pyramid at Giza. It's unclear how long Khufu ruled over Egypt, and for the same reasons as the other rulers of the era, the later documents cannot agree on a term length. The Turin list claims 23 years, 
while Herodotus said 50 years. Manetho went a bit longer and claimed 63 years. There is an inscription in the Great Pyramid that claims to have been written in the year of the 17th Cattle Census, and since they occurred every two years, that would mean a minimum of 34 years. Khufu carried on his father's tradition of trading with his neighbors. He sent several expeditions to Byblos trading copper tools and weapons for Lebanese cedar. The wood was necessary for building large funerary boats. These boats were later rediscovered at the Great Pyramid. He also imported turquoise, copper, and ore from the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Like I said, Khufu is most well known for his pyramids at Giza, including his tomb, the Great Pyramid. This structure has a base of 750 feet on each side, forming a square, which is about 230 meters per side. It's 455 feet, or just about 139 meters tall. It used to be 25 feet or 8 meters taller, but the limestone capstone has weathered away and has been slowly chipped away by people. The entire complex has two other slightly smaller pyramids, as well as several other much smaller pyramids. There are also temples, cemeteries, and the Sphinx. Most of these were built during his or his successor's reigns. The 5th century Greek historian Herodotus described Khufu as a heretic and cruel tyrant. He said of the Pharaoh's reign, quoting, Cheops became king over them and brought them to every kind of suffering. He closed all the temples. After this, he kept the priest from sacrificing there, and then he forced all the Egyptians to work for him. So some were ordered to draw stones from the stone quarries in the Arabian mountains to the Nile and others he forced to receive the stones after they had been carried over the river in boats and to draw them to those called the Libyan Mountains. And they worked by 100,000 men at a time, for each three months continually. Of this oppression, there passed ten years while the causeway was made by which they drew the stones, which causeway they built. And it is a work not much less, as it appears to me, than the pyramid." End quote. He went on to describe the supposed process for constructing the pyramid. He also told of how the pharaoh hired out his own daughter into the world's oldest occupation to pay for his monument. Obviously, Herodotus didn't care for the ruler. He also didn't like his successor. The first century BC Greek historian Diodorus echoed Herodotus' pharaoh-hating sentiment claiming that Khufu was so much detested by his own people in later times that the mortuary priests secretly brought the royal sarcophagus together with the corpse of Khufu to another hidden grave. He also claimed the structures were built by slaves. He estimated that the total number of workers was 300,000 and that the construction took 20 years. So you may be asking, what's the modern theory concerning their construction? The 20th century German physicist Kurt Mendelssohn calculated that the workforce may have been 50,000 men at most, while others say 36,000. Archaeological evidence suggests that around 5,000 were permanent workers on salaries, with the balance working three or four month shifts in lieu of taxes. They also allegedly received subsistence of 10 loaves of bread and a jug of beer per day. The bread was enough to provide for other family members. Zahai 
Hawass, an Egyptian archaeologist, believes that the majority of the workers may have been volunteers. He estimated that only 4,000 laborers would have been necessary. They would have quarried the stone, hauled the blocks to the pyramids, and set the blocks in place. A greater number of workers would have been needed to provide support services, such as scribes, toolmakers, bread bakers, and beer brewers. He claims that the tombs of labor managers contain inscriptions regarding the organization of the workforce. There were two crews of approximately 2,000 workers subdivided into named gangs of 1,000. The gangs were divided into five companies of 200, which were then in turn split into groups of around 20 workers, grouped according to their skills, with each group having their own project leader and a specific task. But, in the end, this is probably just another mystery of history. And on that note, I'll end this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Khufu's successor, Dejefra. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.